Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of The Price of Pain. I'm Josh Crow, and just had a, a freeze here in Gainesville the other day. Um, so I was on my way into work, I saw icicles hanging from some of the horticulture uh, labs. Definitely a unique time, put that together with Omicron, but nonetheless, season two of Price of Pain rolls on. I've got an interesting guest today uh, who is not just a brilliant researcher, she's also a nurse and a dear friend of mine, Dr. Keisha Roach. She's at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, and she works out of the Department of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention. She's done a lot of great work already on uh, racial disparities in pain, and she's had a large focus on sickle cell. But what struck me most in talking to her, aside from how impactful her current research is, um, and how over my head the genomics component of it uh, is, is the fact that she's unique. It seems as if through her time, throughout her undergrad, getting her degree in psychology and minoring in biology and using that degree, working at the NIH and the Pasteur Institute in France, she's been all over the place and had so many experiences. But instead of choosing her career, it seems as if her career chose her. My only complaint about this episode is that we can't have these chats more often. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Keisha Roach. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. So I've been getting um, just acclimated to my new environment, figuring out what the resources are and what the resources are not. I had to get my grants transferred over. I had to get, uh, was it? Um, data use agreements, mm-hmm. get IRB approval, like all of that time-consuming stuff. The behind-the-scenes stuff. Yes. When you when you say the the data usage, that's to use existing data up at Tennessee, or use, to continue to use data from down here. Both. So, yeah. some of the data that I'm using for my research is from University of Illinois, mm-hmm. and some of it is from down here. So the majority of the data is from University of Illinois. So I did my data use agreement with them. And what kind of what kind of data is that from from Illinois that you're working with? So when I did my I did my um, pre doc at University of Illinois. Oh yeah, I knew you had a connection there. Okay, okay. And uh, we did we worked. I was working on a study. I was had a diversity supplement on a study, uh, and we did all of our data collection up there. I was still there, even though. My mentor, my primary mentor, had actually come down here to Florida. Mm-hmm. I did all my data collection there, or all of the data collection there for all of her stuff mm-hmm. and what I would eventually go on to use in my dissertation. And, of course, now that I have this K01 grant, um, some of the questions that I've developed came from looking at that original data set. Really? So that's, that's pretty full circle. Oh yeah. I like it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so from that, you know, I'm looking at a few other things within the K and I'm adding like new, you know, collecting data on new participants Okay. and adding that to it. And yeah. so, so for people 
who are looking at me scratch my nose. For people who are listening along, a K award is is part of a publicly funded grant through the NIH. It's it's a I should say um, a structure, a specific structure. And there are multiple types of K award, but they're all correct me if I'm wrong, intended to be for early stage investigators. Once you transition out of a training and into being an independent researcher, they're intended to kind of fund your research and your salary and whatnot in that phase. Correct. Right. So a K. The K, particular K that I have, and I can probably safely say all the Ks, are training grants. And you, the type of K that you get depends on, like, the type of research that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing, like, clinical trials or clinical studies, it might be one type of K. And if you're doing basic science, it might be another type of K. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm looking at a diverse group, so that... It's related to the type of K that I applied for. Okay. All right. And yeah. so, and what specifically, so there's, there's a training component, but then there's also a research component, right? You said with the oh, diverse it has, group. Yeah. So what's a, what are some of the training things? This is something that we have all different kinds of people on the podcast uh, from different points in their careers and different disciplines and research interests. I'm not sure that we've ever had a chance to discuss this. So what, um, just for you, if you don't mind sharing, what are the, the training aspects of your K? What do you want to improve in your, in your toolkit as you move forward? So for one, so one of the training part, all of it for me is training. Mm -hmm. So it's how to set up and start and run a study and do the data collection and do the statistical analysis. And I'm doing some, um, epigenetics training so learning how to use python in different programs that'll allow me to um, at least i don't plan on becoming a biostatistician per se mm -hmm. but when i'm looking at my data and looking at the output and thinking about writing another grant and what's going to be needed i need to at least be able to have a conversation with the statistician right and so it's important to me that i learn like at least some of the basics of what that is. So I'm learning that as a part of my training grant. And the beautiful part is that I get to have a mentoring team. And as I come up against, so just really for everything, as I come up against barriers mm -hmm. um, that might occur, I can talk to them about it. I can talk to them as a group if it's going to take all of our brains. Mm -hmm. Or I can talk to them individually because each of my mentors have has their own specialty. Right. So um, one person has, you know, does genetics and genomics, and that is where her doctorate and all of her training there, she's a full professor. And another one, her training is in pain specifically uh -huh. and patients with cancer and patients with sickle cell disease. And then my third mentor, her um, training is also in pain, but it's pain in cognition. And so... All of these, for me, as they are as they relate to sickle cell mm -hmm. disease. I see. I think that that's awesome. In that, first of all, you're you're very well rounded as it is. You know, you, with your degree in nursing, and didn't you have a, a minor in psychology or something like that from undergrad also? And no, I had a degree in psychology. You had a degree. Pardon me. Okay. <laughs> from the University of Maryland. Look, as great as UMD is, and I, you know, I got my degree in psychology from Arizona State. They're all great. Undergrad degrees in psychology will get you so far, right? But so. <laughs> degree a minor there's a small difference right anyway but in all seriousness you know you, you've got a, a well-rounded skill set as it is so I think it's really cool to to think about and to share that actually with our audience that 
just the nature of research and researchers and that you're always looking to piece more skills into your overall skill set. And one of the best ways to do that is to get a platform that you can kind of stand on there to reach out to experts who have spent their whole career on that. So, you know, you don't have to have an infinite expertise in genomics if you get to the point where you have a, a firm foundation, then you can communicate with somebody who's devoted their whole career in that and then collaborate. Exactly. Right? I think exactly. that's awesome. That's awesome. And my path was, you know, I call it the long and windy road because <laughs> you and me both. I um, started off in psychology mm -hmm. um, with a minor in biology. So okay. that was my minor. Okay. And I worked at the National Institutes of Health during my last two years in undergrad. And I found that I really enjoyed learning about genetics. And this was like back in the day because I started off when they were doing restriction, restriction fragment length polymorphisms. What is that? Because most people, me included, have no idea what that means. Uh, that's when you take smaller pieces of the of the DNA in order and to like get information about what it's going. So now we look at like the full genome, but in this mm -hmm. one, they were using enzymes, specific enzymes to cut the genome and then look at these smaller fragments and then put them together and see. Just to see what the smaller fragments did on their own. Right. Okay. Right. What are, what are, we don't do that so much anymore. And, and please educate me along with everybody else throughout this conversation. You know, I'm oftentimes going to act as a proxy for our audience. Uh, because I'm sure that if I have a question about it, then somebody out there is also. Sometimes that means I have to ask questions that I already know the answers to. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have genuine questions. So <laughs> this is a genuine question. You say that we've gone from that, from looking at a piece to now looking at the entire genome. What are some of the benefits of looking at the whole genome? How, why, why is that an advancement? Why, why don't we get what we need to know from looking at the individual pieces? That's a really good question. But... What we can see looking at the entire genome is we get more answers. So we get more answers, um, a bigger picture of of what's happening, what, what we think that we're seeing. And also we have the opportunity to, as other things come up, if we, for example, don't have all of the information for a specific gene mm -hmm. that we want to see, we can now take from all this other data, impute, impute, um, and get information about the gene that we didn't necessarily sequence. I see. I see. By by finding out by what's finding not out going what's, on. By, by, what's, yeah. what's around it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, that's definitely, I think, a, one of the pluses of of using the the whole mm -hmm. genome. So. Yeah. That's it's one of those things where, and it's funny because when when you think to put your expertise in layperson's terms. It's funny, I've come upon this before and gotten feedback from, from our audience as well. Stuff that you've done that's so commonplace now that seems like, oh, well, they already know that. A lot of times, people don't. You're just getting so used to using it all the time that mm -hmm. like you have to you have to scale way back to the point where it's like, oh, I, I get it, I see what you're saying. So any of these questions, you know, I'm. A, not trying to stump you by asking a, a hard question that I think sounds simple, but that really doesn't have an easy answer. I'm, you know, so I'm not trying to put you in a spot, no, but there's, fine. there's so much of this stuff you've already forgotten, regardless of where you are in, in this path down, down genomics, 
you've already forgotten far more than I'll ever know about this topic. So, so you have to bear with my ignorance. No, that's fine. I mean, right. and then it makes me think about God. What, what is now, Why this? don't like, we do that how, anymore? How, how do we describe the, the fork versus the spork? Right. Oh, okay. See, that's a, that's a great analogy. Okay, good. So, all right. So let's, let's go back then just a little bit, because not everybody gets a chance to work for the NIH. Were you actually in Bethesda or, or? I was in building 10 wow. when that was the building. <laughs> Wow. That's yeah. so cool. Yes. That's so cool. So I was with the first year, because I did two years. The first year I was with the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism mm-hmm. and uh, under Dr. David Goldman. He's still there, still amazing, um, still in contact with him as needed. And, um, and then the second year I was in uh, the National let's see, Mental Health. Okay. Institute. Okay. With uh, with what would what'd you say the first one was alcohol and substance abuse, alcohol abuse and alcoholism, and I triple A. Okay, and what specifically were you looking at with with gene segments and genomics and, and what? Well, I um, guess it was genetics. Well, at the for time. him, it, so I was definitely just coming in as a research assistant, cold off the street, mm-hmm. literally. I wanted to work there so bad. I would look. I got the cat. I put in an application. I didn't hear anything, mm-hmm. and I put in another application, didn't hear anything. And I went and got the catalog and looked at all the people who were doing work that looked interesting to me. And I just went to their office. So the first person that I went to, we had a conversation and he was like, told the person to get the paperwork going. Oh, that's (laughs) awesome. You wandered into the right office. I wandered into the right office. That's such a cool story. (laughs) So, but, but it doesn't stop there. So that's, you spend time working there, but then it, and then you also got a degree in nursing, but the degree in nursing is not your PhD. No, the degree in nursing is my PhD. So oh, it is. When I left the after I finished my undergraduate degree, I did not stay in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Okay. So I left the NIH, and I took a position at um, University University of Chicago in okay. the Howard Hughes Institute there, mm-hmm. working in another lab where they were doing molecular genetics research, but this time it was in diabetes. And once again, I really enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed working and I mean, late hours, my family knew to call the lab before they called my house. And it wasn't because anybody asked me to stay late. That's where I wanted to be. Oh, that's, that's that great. was like my sweet zone, my Zen zone. Do you know how many people would kill for that? To be able to make money doing what exactly what they want to do or to, you know, to build a career and a degree exactly what they want to do. Yeah. A lot of times it starts off that way, but I don't know if it's ever as intense as what you're talking about. Where <laughs> you just, you know. It was good. And but for me, it wasn't um, like I was doing my own research. I was just doing whatever experiments that the team needed me to do. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, getting then, experience and then running the, the lab and getting experience the whole time. And then if summer pe- people came in for the summer, the students to kind of manage them and make sure they learn all the things in it, they needed to do learn to, <clears throat> excuse me, to get, um, to do the work that they were asking them to do mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. But, and then I followed the work that I was doing. It was a collaboration with the French group, followed the work that I was doing to France because when they finished the U.S. portion of it, the French team wanted to continue their leg of it. And since I had already been working with that, those DNA samples and things, they 
found a way to get me a carte de séjour and get permission for me to come and work in the lab at the Pasteur Institute, even though I didn't have a PhD. So for lack of a better term, that's the French connection. Because we've talked before about your time in France and how you love living there. I didn't realize how that came to pass. I thought it was a familial thing, like you have family over there. <laughs> no, you you just you're yeah. just in in the field crushing it, and they're like, "Yep, you know what? You're so good at this. We should send you over there and do a little bit more." Yep. So they kept the research assistant slash coordinator, and um, and so once again, you know, it wasn't my own work. Mm-hmm. I only had a bachelor's, mm-hmm. um, but I enjoyed doing, and I was learning the whole time. At what point did you decide that you wanted a PhD then? I started, I knew I wanted a PhD from when I was in high school. Oh, really? You're one of those people. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's what I'm, that's where I'm going to end. But I couldn't see how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And when I would talk to people who I thought were so amazingly smart and bright, they would always say, well, you know, it's really hard. <laughs> Are you sure that's really what you want to do? And I would say, oh, really? It's like, well, so I didn't ask the right questions. So, so did any of that take hold then? Did that actually discourage you from getting a did. PhD? It, is, oh. it discouraged me from getting a PhD. That's a shame. But a part of me always wanted it anyways. I would always circle back and think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, so I'm jumping fast forwarding. That's <laughs> once, all right. Is... Once I, so there was a student. One thing that I tend to do is I love to help people who are trying to make the next steps in their lives. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you know high school kids come to me or young kids or can can you help me with my application for college or can we talk about X, Y, and Z? Um, So I helped a kid do his application for college and he got accepted. And then I helped him negotiate what his financial aid package should look like. This is while you were just still with your bachelor's degree doing science. You weren't a counselor. Okay. And, um, And then I decided at that point, I was like, okay, Keisha, just face it. You haven't done the PhD for so you haven't done it. So just forget it. Move to the next level in your life and just forget it. And I literally got physically ill when I made the decision not to get a PhD. Really? So that next day I filled out my application. All right. So you know what? <laughs> that is awesome. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to share a little bit of a story of my own, but I love that because you made a decision and the reaction of that decision is what led you to one of the most important actual decisions you could have made, right? I do this on a small scale all the time. (laughs) Sometimes I get indecisive. Now, this is not me minimizing or or belittling your choice. I'm just saying, when you said that, I was like, oh, wow, so I'm on to something here. On a much smaller scale, I'm sitting at home like, man, I don't know. It's getting kind of late. Should I cook dinner or should I just order pizza? You know, I flip a coin. But this is the thing. I don't necessarily go with the answer. I go with how the answer makes me feel, <laughs> just like you did. Right. If I say, okay, right. A, I'm gonna A, I'm gonna go ahead and get off my butt and cook something. B, I'm gonna order a pizza. Or heads or tails rather. So I flip a coin and if it's tails, I go, nah, I probably should have cooked something. Then I go cook something. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So exactly. that's you, you sometimes no matter how brilliant you are, case in point, you have to follow your gut. You have to follow your gut. Okay. You have to follow your gut. And one thing that I did in between there before I even applied to this PhD program, I had come back to the U.S. and worked a little bit more as a research assistant. Or And, and now they let, gave me, I had a title of like scientist two or something okay. at a, um, a biotech company out on the, in Torrey Pines, California. Mm-hmm. And um, I 
felt, felt the inkling of, I've been doing this for so long. I haven't moved forward with it. I haven't gotten a master's or a PhD. But my burning question is, how is all this work that I'm doing tied to, like, how does that look on the human side? Mm-hmm. So that's what made me get a nursing degree. Okay. And I okay. knew that I wanted to get a PhD, but I felt like I could better inform any research question that I had if I had an understanding of, like, how this directly impacts the human side. So you wanted, so you're saying then you wanted, and that's, maybe that's where I got confused about your PhD not being the nursing degree, because I know you've said before, the reason that you went into nursing was specifically for that. You wanted to see what was happening at the patient level. You wanted to see the end point of all of this work. And so that's why you got into nursing. Right. Uh, but you went with the whole shebang anyway. You you went PhD nursing, so you could do both the clinical component and the research component at the same time. Right. Okay. So I, and I went into nursing and I stayed in the field. I planned on staying in the field for like two or three years and then going back for my PhD, but I ended up staying in the field for 15 <laughs> and then going for my um, my PhD in the in the College of Nursing. And mm-hmm. and in the meantime, I was thinking, well, do I want to do this in nursing or should I do it in something else? And really, I looked in more looked into more than one type of program. But what I learned is that nurse scientists had come so far in what they do and they did everything I had. And even even outside of nurse scientists, just nursing, period, mm-hmm. I had friends who were nurses, but then they went to University of Chicago and got their JD. So they were RNJDs and nurses, nurse friends who had MBAs and run businesses. And, and so I got the idea that I wasn't going to be limited if I chose nursing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew that, you know, the funding might be there. Um, I knew that I might be able to finish if I stayed focused right um see that makes me want to that makes me want a nursing degree (laughs) I feel you know and I I all the joking earlier about the psychology degree there I I, a psychology degree alone doesn't do career-wise a whole lot for you you always need something in addition to that but the benefit of that degree to 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 my development at least and, and how much it's informed uh, so much, even, you know, once, once I got into, a, you know, applied physiology and kinesiology in graduate school has been so beneficial for that. But it sounds like the nursing degree is another one of those types of degrees that, that just has a way of, of kind of bolstering anything else that you do. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, for sure. So, um, for me, it serves to, you know, drive all the questions. In fact, because of nursing, I do sickle cell research. Mm-hmm. Like no one in my family has sickle cell disease. I didn't know anybody personally. At least I didn't think I did. I let it learn that I definitely did. Yeah. Um, but um, I, it took you know one patient. I was going to do diabetes research. That's what mm-hmm. I knew, and that's where I was comfortable. Mm-hmm. It took one patient in the emergency department one night suffering from vasoocclusive crisis. What's that? Break that down. For That's us. when the your blood red blood cells mm-hmm. are you know you're in a low oxygen state or a stress state, um, and and you your red blood cells change shape, basically, and they go from being round to being a sickled mm-hmm. shape or a C shape, which is where sickle the name came came from. I see. And um, 
then these these cells go on to clog the the veins and you can have a vasoocclusive crisis anywhere mm. you can have it in your hip you can have it in your brain so you have like babies that have strokes at a, at a little age at a young age six because months, of sickle nine months because of sickle cell you can blindness priapism you have problems with your spleen splenic sequestration you have vasoocclusive crisis in your lungs they call it acute chest any place where the blood flows, mm-hmm. you can have a crisis there. So in sickle cell anemia, the the blood, the red blood cells are not always in that sickle shape. They get depleted of oxygen, and that's what changes them to that shape. Yes. So they're not all, they're not always in the shape in that shape. And depending on the severity of your sickle cell disease, kind of determines how if it if it sickles or how long it sickles. I mean, or if it sickles or how long it takes before the hemoglobin um, sickles. Um, but one of the things about sickle cell disease where you don't see it in really young people is because when you, your fetal hemoglobin doesn't sickle. Mm. And so after you've gone through the part of your life where you've depleted your fetal hemoglobin, mm-hmm. that's when you start to see you know, crisis, vasoclusive crisis, if those individuals are going to be prone to that. Because not everybody who has sickle cell gets vasoocclusive crisis. Okay. It's just so many variations, and that's where all this research comes so in. So can you not diagnose sickle cell until that change occurs, then once all the fetal hemoglobin is, so like you no longer have that in your system? Is that what you're saying? No, you can, um, so we now, we haven't always, but we now have uh, prenatal, uh, we have fe- um, prenatal testing. So okay. when you're when you're born, um, you get tested to see uh, for many things, but one mm-hmm. of the tests is to see if you have sickle cell disease. So, na- start, I think it started like in the seventies when they did the prenatal testing. So from that, you um, you have your results. I'm curious. This uh, I want to scroll back just a little bit here. You said you planned only on practicing nursing for a couple years before going on to your PhD, but it turned into 15. Was it this that kept you there or was it something else? No, it was, it was something else. I, um, enjoyed like working in the acute care setting. Okay. So I was in the cardiovascular ICU for a while and the medical ICU for a while and the neuro ICU for a while. And, and so for each one, it comes with a different skill set. Mm-hmm. You're learning new things, and not only are you learning new things, you have to implement them quickly. It's fast-paced. You know, you only get two patients or one patient um, per shift mm-hmm. because everybody is because the patients are so acutely ill in in the ICU settings. Okay, so that just that gathering more knowledge and moving on to the next thing and learning a, a different system and a different type of care. That's what kept you there for a little while longer. So then, what? You mentioned the one patient with sickle cell that really said, "Oh wow, this is this is intriguing to me." What what was the what was the thought? Was it the question mark of why, or was it how they were treated or not able to be treated? What what was it that that really turned the rudder for you? Not only, I mean, at this at that point, were you when you came upon that patient, were you Already working on your PhD, or was it during that clinical phase? Oh no, I, I was uh, a relatively new nurse. Okay. At the time. Okay. So, what really turned the rudder then toward the the interest in sickle cell anemia? Because he was sitting there suffering in the emergency department, and nobody seemed to really care. Mm. 
and these were people that I was working with and and people that were training me mm-hmm. as a new you know as a new grad um I was learning from them like what do we do how do we treat these individuals what and their main response was that he was faking interesting so w- when when that patient came in they what what were they what symptoms were they exhibiting what what did they report to you that i mean did they say hey i have sickle cell anemia or did they say oh my chest hurts or what what was it that that they thought that they could test versus what they thought the patient was faking so i didn't when i came on to my shift the patient was already in the emergency department he's okay. all he was already in the room okay um so i t- got report at change of shift and I was working the night shift that night and he hadn't gotten, he had gotten some pain medications, but he was saying that it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's not what he normally gets, like the amount that normally works for him. And he said what the amount that normally works for him is. And there they said, see, he's even telling us what to give him. And they would use that as an example of him being drug seeking instead of an example of him having lived with the disease long enough mm. to have an understanding of what typically right, worked right. for him because he hadn't wasn't his first basal occlusive crisis. Mm. And um, I remember like he was watching television and they were like, see, he forgot that he was complaining about pain. Um, he's sitting there watching television. And I was like, okay, look, i know that I'm a relatively new grad, but one of the things that we learned about was distraction. Like, mm-hmm. how are you saying this? I don't, and so it was confusing to me. I was in orientation too. <laughs> it was, <laughs> Not really in the position where you could speak out a whole lot, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I could and I did. And I ended up going to a different institution. Because of that? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. That's yes. a, so this is a big moment for you. Let me ask this really quick also. Um, young guy, older guy? He was probably in his late teens or early twenties. Oh, man, okay. So, and and this and is... he ended up throwing his tray at me. Oh, really? He was so frustrated, and all I could say is, "I see you, I, I see you, I see you." Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. And that, so, you got into that degree path in that environment specifically to learn about what happens at the patient end and you got an answer that was pretty poignant it sounds like particularly with sickle cell mm-hmm. but also you know I, we've had other guests on um be it uh dr star booker who's mentioned this um dr emily bartley we've talked about you know uh, dr chris mccurdy who was you know just recently on for the second time about differentiating between people who really know their condition and and what treatment they've had in the past because they have to live with this every day and drug-seeking behavior, which is, is a very real thing, and how difficult it must be to delineate between the two and recognize the signs of each. And so what were some of the things that, that you saw in this young man that that really let you know, hey, we're not getting it right here? I think that what the main thing that stood out for me is that 
from my training in nursing schools, I'm not, we're not the judge and the jury of somebody's pain. Mm -hmm. That pain is subjective and pain is what they say it is. And we have to treat the patients with the information that they provide us with. Mm -hmm. And, and with their history of their, our patients, we can see like previous admissions and things like that. So I don't know if that was his case. Um, if he had, if that was his home hospital, I don't think it was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if he had been admitted in the past, certainly there was going to be some kind of record. Sure. Now, when when somebody comes into the ED that is complaining of, of pain, are there are there tests or, or maybe I should, you know, roll back to that point. Were there tests that you could do to to get an idea if they were in a severe vaso-occlusive state that would taking all subjectivity of pain out of it that would say, okay, this, this is definitely going on right here. Um, if he's reporting pain, this would make sense that he's in pain because we can see that he has sickle cell and right now he's vaso-occlusive. Are there assessments like that that you, you could have done at the time or that you did do? So when a patient comes in and he has a diagnosis of, of sickle cell, especially if they've been there, been to that particular hospital before, you know that the report of having sickle cell is, is real. Mm -hmm. um, but no, you have to just constantly assess the patient and go by what you see. Mm -hmm. And sometimes their response to pain medications, if that's, if, you know, if, if that's what they're getting, if it's enough or it's not enough. And in some play, in some cases, you know, you can speak to their physician. If they have a physician, even if the physician's at another institution, they might call in and speak to whoever's the attending and mm -hmm. have that conversation. But well, the other thing is there are certain algorithms that are in place for people who come in with with pain. If, mm -hmm. if a guy comes in um, with chest pain and shortness of breath, then there's a a cocktail of what he's going to get or mm -hmm. her or she is going to get mm -hmm. um, to address that pain because it could be a heart attack. Right. You right. know, and they'll know like for sure after they do the, the, well, not for sure, but they'll know, have a really good, you know, estimation that this is what's happening. Right. Right. If after they do like an EKG, for example, with, with sickle cell, um, can you get an indication of what's going on by looking at, um, like, uh, pulse oximetry, like looking at um, oxygen saturation? No, but there are other there are other um, tests that they can look at. Uh, for example, they can look at like the the platelet count. Okay. They can look at the white blood cell count. So it's more on a blood analysis level, not something that you can really see from the outside. Yeah. So, well, okay. And, uh, so that that stuff doesn't do you very much good in that moment. You really have to listen to what the patient is saying as far as their pain. Yeah, and they'll and they'll and the labs will come back, and the labs are not you know the end all, but it at least helps to guide. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes, if, you know, with the labs, they may or may not listen mm -hmm. to the patient. Um, I'm just trying to think now how much things have changed because I've been out of that setting sure, for, sure, for sure, a long sure. time. And in some places, in some cases, things have moved forward. Mm -hmm. In some places, not so much. I mean, sometimes you have physicians in the emergency department treating patients, and they've never seen sickle cell before. So, you know, they don't really understand it or know what it is. 
the place where I am now, they have, um, you know, between the different hospitals or actually a few specific hospitals, they will treat the patients who have sickle cell disease and they will keep the records. They'll have a um, like an algorithm of what happens and it's patient specific. Mm -hmm. And if that patient's not from that hospital, they have like a rounds, grand rounds between the sickle cell providers from the different hospitals and say, hey, we saw your patient. Right. That's very unusual. And it's great for the patients, but that's not how most places work. I think it was you that we, we had a conversation a while back, um, long before this episode. And I think it was you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had said that, I want to say it was one of your research participants, told you that they were asked, either by a nurse or a physician, oh, when did you contract sickle cell? Yeah, yeah. But you don't contract sickle cell. No, That's not how that works. You're, you're born, born with, with it. it. <laughs> so, so that just kind of highlights the fact that this – why do you suppose it's, it's That's not – like, hey, when, yeah. did, when did you contract blue eyes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why do you suppose that is then? Why is, why is there that, that huge gap in knowledge in, in a profession that, that really should have their finger on that pulse? No pun intended. Um, you know, it could, I don't know. I speculate, you know, and I don't know if it's because I don't know if I'm jaded or just I've seen things and, and look at them from a realist perspective. I don't know if it's because, you know, of the population that it impacts, mm -hmm. um, that the level of caring just isn't where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and more times than not, I think that that's what it is. And I, hope to be wrong so then you well you say the population who who predominantly has sickle cell then what population so sickle cell disease predominantly impacts um people of african ancestry okay so uh, well it impacts people of african ancestry for sure oh. and predominantly in our country african-americans mm -hmm. and then to a lesser degree um people of of latino descent okay all right i was going to ask that actually because that's one of my blind spots when it comes to sickle cell do do Caucasians, do white people get, can they, I don't want to say get sickle cell, can they be born with sickle cell? Um, so in like the Mediterranean region, mm -hmm. um, you do have white people who get different types of sickle cell, like beta thalassemias and the different levels of thalassemia, which when, when you have two parents with different types of maybe thalassemia, you might be, you might end up with one of those um, forms of sickle cell that's mm -hmm. that's that's deleterious. That gives you a lot of a sickle cell crisis. That's mm -hmm. very painful. And so there's more than one type of sickle cell then. So there's sickle cell, but there are different types of um, genotypes within the sickle cell. So okay. whether you have, you know, I wish I could explain it better. Wish I'd been more prepared. For yeah, no, this no, question. not at all. But like, this is a casual you have SS and then you have SC and you have SE and you beta thalassemia plus, and then you have O beta thalassemia negative mm -hmm. minus, um, and did I say E D? So there are about six or seven different types of sickle cell within your 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 genes for your genotype okay okay and so, so they can uh, combine based on your two parents and different you get different different flavors of sickle cell that could deform the red blood cells that you have based on certain 
conditions. Right. And then other things impact, you know, whether or not your blood cells get sickled and mm-hmm. your your how your veins respond and whether or not you get crisis. Um, for example, stress is one of those things. So mm-hmm. you asked about, we were talking earlier about my degree in psychology. Well, my K award, the title of that grant is biopsychosocial factors of sickle cell disease pain. Mm-hmm. Because I'm looking at, you know, behavioral behavioral and things like stress and resilience and what are your sleep patterns and and then more bio like what are the um inflammatory markers that might be floating around Mm -hmm. what concentration and then genomics you know what genes are related to pain and which one which you know genotype are you expressing is that more related related to more stress and Mm -hmm. And just all these different things that you know. yeah we have a and that's fascinating and it seems like it's a <laughs> could very easily be a lifetime worth of work because we have all of these factors to talk about the biopsychosocial model we've discussed this on on the podcast before where there are different influences you know biological influence psychological influences social influences that can that can affect how an individual not necessarily even a type of person, but how an individual subjectively experiences pain. And all of those factors, and they're not always constant, right? There are some, they can be, some of them are state dependent, being how, how you are right now. Some of them are more trait, trait. dependent, mm-hmm. right? So that's how you always are. But then when you take something like sickle cell that seems very complicated unto itself and overlay that over, the, over just the pain model, that everybody experiences, no matter who you are, that's a lot of different combinations. It seems like a, a, a very, a moving target, I should say, when it comes to, to diagnosis and to treatment and, and to looking at how you can really help these patients. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely is. One case in point is um, at one of the institutions where I worked, there was um, a sickle cell center okay. where the individuals would be able to come in they would be able to bypass the emergency department and see someone if they were having problems. And we had a person who would come in pretty regularly. We knew who he was and it wasn't all, sometimes it was dehydration. Sometimes it was, it wasn't always a need for pain medications per se as mm-hmm. to why he was coming into, but it was, it was related to his sickle cell. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times it was pain, but not always. And one particular time, the physician put the patient into the room and, you know, I'll be right back. And then he comes out into the waiting, past the waiting area. And he's like, hey, didn't I just put, put you in the room? How'd you get back out here so fast? Turns out the guy had an identical twin, monozygotic twins. Oh, wow. Of which the twin never had a crisis. Really? Yeah. So, and we were like, that's, that would be a great case study. Yeah. Um, and I don't have more information. I'm, because he was an identical it. twin, he yeah. had sickle cell, but he never had, that never manifested into the pain and the claudication and, and everything that comes along with right. the, the cells actually sickling. Right. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's very fascinating. But but also perplexing. Because <laughs> how do you if that's to the case? To your point, it's very yeah. it's very wide and deep. 
Well, you chose the right career path, my friend. There's a lot of work. That's you know what that says to me? Job security. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm what pulling my hair out. Right. <laughs> See, I can't get into situations like that. I don't have a whole lot of wiggle room when it comes to hair pulling. <laughs> so what Tell me a little bit about what you're working on specifically right now, then. Um, I, you had a, a fantastic job talk that I had the pleasure of sitting in on. Um, when you were here, before you left University of Florida, you were doing, as as scholars do, developing the presentation that you would give that, that talked about your background and your interests and, and your funding with your K and where you were headed. And it was so fascinating to me. And I would love, even if it's just a little bit, now I'm not asking for a presentation by any means, but but kind of clue me in with with where you was it a comp t gene that you were looking at man i you gotta help me out because this is so far in the deep end of what i do like i'm a meathead scientist so i need to you need to help me out with this but but peel back the curtain just a little bit okay. on what you're doing right now what your current interest is in because i know i just totally butchered that um but but with sickle cell and, and sickle cell pain so we did I, the group that I was working with, so the group who kind of, who not kind of, who definitely mentored me and took me under their wing as I was coming up, they had some data on a CompT DRD3. Yes. All right. So, so that was right. So that is a paper that we wrote together. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the first author. I, I did the, you know, background, look at it and look at the work and wrote it, wrote the paper and. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, of course, scrutinized it and you go back and forth until it's ready. So, yes, we did that. But um, one of the main things when I first applied to my Ph.D. program, I knew that I wanted to do genomics. Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to find a group that was using and I knew that I wanted to study pain. So it was Mm -hmm. important for me to find a group that was doing that. And um, and I was lucky. I was lucky at the University of Illinois. I did find that. Mm And um, so just because I was getting started again, I had been away from the bench for a long time. Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital for 15 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there were a couple of, they had just determined a couple of um, pain-related genes that that had, like, high frequency within the African-American population. Okay. So we, so I picked a couple of them. And just started learning about it and doing some research on it in terms of looking at the pain and um, how this related to pain and hospital utilization, Mm -hmm. um, average pain intensity in Mm -hmm. in relation to this particular um, gene. And so we found that, you know, with this gene, you didn't necessarily have um, a lot of... um, I can't remember the the CPI. I can't remember <laughs> the term for That's that. Right. But, but layman's terms are totally cool for this group. I, <laughs> I'm going to act did. on your behalf. Yeah, it's okay to keep it at the you know pain by numbers level you with us. You did have acute pain, and you had um, a higher level of utilization that was significant. Okay. So I went ahead and looked a little further at that, and looked at the same gene in. Um, older and younger adults like so what is it is there something protective about this gene or you know what is it with and then then we also related it to stress so um we used we didn't use it's because it was retrospective in a sense we didn't Mm -hmm. specifically use a a stress scale but we used other proxies 
that that pointed to stress. Like and what? Like give an example of how you could do that. How you so could tease stress. we went to so in the comment section, mm-hmm. um, you can write down anything you want. So some of the individuals wrote that um, they were having stress mm. and that the stress that they related the level of stress that they were under to the reason why they were having pain. Let me tell you right now, just hearing that is making me stressed out because when it comes to working data <laughs> in a study, it's really nice when everything falls into a scale, a numeric scale, or a yes and no, or you know, check the box. When you have to go back and read comments, <laughs> then, I mean, I don't know how many participants you're talking about and what kind of sample size, but that's stressing me out just hearing about it. That stuff alone is not easy. But please, by all means, now that you've got me all worked up, continue. <laughs> well, actually, it's not that bad. You go and you look at the comments and then you rate the for the people who talked about stress or no stress. You just rate it as a zero or a okay, one. Okay, okay. They get a one if they talked about stress being related to the pain and then zero see. otherwise. And then, of course, for that kind of data that kind of research you get someone else to also look at the data without knowing what you've done mm-hmm. and see what's the consensus and then you come together and you have a discussion about the ones where there wasn't a match and then you get your final result mm-hmm. so and besides you get the undergrads to do the ones and zeros for the comments right well i was a i was a pre-doc so, so that was you <laughs> so that was all right <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you you spent your time in the trenches then. It's all easy from here on out. <laughs> I definitely did. So, um, so yeah, so we so we looked at stress and we saw some indicators of this particular gene, this mm-hmm. particular genotype and stress. And then I looked at another sample of individuals um against this gene, but this time I broke it up into younger and older adults. And mm-hmm. I did that because I'm I was just curious as to whether there was something protective about this ABPR1A gene or this particular um, genotype with within this gene. Now, are all of all of these participants you're looking at are they all African Americans? They're all African Americans. Okay. Okay. They're all African Americans with sickle cell disease. Okay. So, they... what, if I may ask, just really quickly, and you may not have this off the top of your head because it was a while ago, mm-hmm. but is there an, a specific age age range where you're looking at um, older adults? You know, adults with sickle cell, everybody from teens upward. What what kind of and and both both sexes uh, equally or yeah. So they were age and sex matched. Okay. Okay. Um, or age and age age and sex matched. That was another study. Mm-hmm. But anyways, <laughs> they were um, so the they were all adults. Mm-hmm. The younger adults were age eighteen to thirty nine. Okay. And the older adults within sickle cell disease because of, you know, the way that the, the because of the life expectancy, basically. So what, how is, does that affect 40 that? to and up? Well, patients who have sickle cell disease aren't expect, they don't, they're not expected to have a long life, expect a long mm-hmm. life. Um, but we have people who are living longer, people who. For various reasons, you know, we've had patients who lived into their into their seventies, and even um, here in Florida, I was a colleague told me of a patient that they had in in their eighties who had. Sickle but cell. but that's a really big indication of how sickle cell can impact lifespan. Because look, I'll count myself fortunate if I live into my seventies, but also there's a big part of me that's expecting to do that. Mm-hmm. Right, that seventies is not old anymore. Right. 
However, if you're talking about, well, some of them live into their 70s, then that really is a huge impact on, on longevity. Yeah, because the question, the, it can just as easily be, well, some of them live into their 50s um, because uh, uh, we lose a lot in their 30s and 40s. Now, what about, and I know I, you have to please forgive me for taking this tangent, but this is also something that I think a lot of people don't know about six. So I certainly didn't. Uh, as far as affecting lifespan, when it comes to... Um, I hate to use the term, you know, normal adult. So let's just say a healthy adult. Um, pick any race. When it comes to a healthy adult, you have a lifespan where, you know, you, if if you're fortunate and healthy, your younger years, you're pretty resilient. Your adulthood, you get your aches and pains and stuff. But but each stage of life is 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 marked by some some pretty specific characteristics, right? When when the average person, if there's such a thing, gets older, okay, so you may have more. Um, you know, musculoskeletal pain, some more, you know, joint stiffness and soreness. Um, you may not have the endurance that you normally have. You may not, you may not have the balance that you once had. But these are all characteristics of, of later stage life. If you're looking at someone with sickle cell, on the other hand, what does, what does their late, late stage in life look like characteristic-wise, whether it's in their 30s or whether it's in their 60s or 70s or 80s? Is, well, it, it, is varies, it akin to? It varies a lot with each individual. It's very individual. But you have a lot of, um, you have individuals who start to have regular aging mm -hmm. um, factors. And then you have others who've had like vaso-occlusive crisis and thing, pain issues. Or maybe they um, have had some deleterious like stroke or something like mm -hmm. this happen um, that they're having to live with, even though maybe they're not having as many um, crises. So there are things that compound. So, well, and so I was going to say, that's another thing that as, as you age, your cardiovascular health typically declines. If, if you're 75 years old, say, oh man, your heart looks great for a 75 year old. But if you compare it to a 20 year old, it's, it's a 75 year old's heart, right? Mm -hmm. So since we're talking about red blood cells, yeah as a person's vascular system ages and those changes, those natural changes occur, compound that with any, um, you know, lifestyle, behavioral, dietary changes. I can see how that could very easily compound the effects of these vaso-occlusive events. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you have somebody who's, who's dealing with this more frequently, more pain involved. Like yeah. what? Um, not this, it just, it just depends on the once again on the individuals mm -hmm. um just in this year alone 2021 mm -hmm. so not this year last year sure. um of the individuals that i know of who passed away from sickle cell disease mm -hmm. maybe they're about nine or ten. Oh wow okay. and they were all in their um early 30s to mid 40s and that's just me not keeping track. Sure, just, that's just anecdotally, just yeah. your, people you've you've come into contact through work or friends or right. Wow. So, um, for the for example, for the pain gene that I was looking at, that's turned out to be related to stress mm -hmm. and pain and sickle cell disease. Um, we're looking. We're wondering if there's something protective because you can look at this genotype and break it up between younger and older adults, and older adults 
the older adults are more likely to have the protective genotype mm -hmm. than the younger adults. And explain to me again what, why you think it's protective. Is, is it because they exhibit less pain? Is it because they, they have fewer vaso-occlusive incidents? Yeah. What, what is the it's gene It's because doing? they tend to have fewer, fewer vaso-occlusive incidents. They tend to have um, less pain and they report less stress than the individuals who have a different gen genotype within this particular gene. And so, you know, then we went and we looked and we're like, where is this located? Well, it turns out the gene is in the promoter region. And we're like, okay, well, what the promoter region is. <laughs> yeah, it's just good. You're catching on. Is the region of the, of the DNA sequence that is where the, um, the proteins are like, if it's if it's how do i put this <laughs> you tell me <laughs> so it's so what it does is it um regulates the amount of protein that's produced okay so it's either going to be produced to a higher extent or to a lower extent it, you don't know which what part of it really turns it on or off or t whether it produces more or less okay those are other studies that you look at. Right. But it, the interesting part that it's in that region. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that we're thinking about looking at or have started looking at is like based on your level of stress and pain, mm -hmm. what does your protein profile look like um, t with the timing of when we collected this data this patient was having high pain or stress. Mm -hmm. So that's just something that we're looking is at. Is it possible? And I and I know these questions are, this is, this is a layman question. Um, because oftentimes when I ask them, it's not known. But I'm curious, you know, to, to try to at least, I, I try to entice our guests to speculate a little bit. But is it possible that, that this is, uh, you know, part of the genome that could be activated by stress? Or is it, that, that it's protective of the negative effects of stress on somebody with sickle cell. Is it possible there could be either one? It could be either one. Okay. It's, it's possible. So how do you get to the bottom of that? So when we're looking at like the different protein profiles and seeing what, um, what like the amount of produced or, and, and then relate that back to the patient's state, current state when you collected the data mm -hmm. and then also looking at um, other proteins around it like what else is is being impacted and being produced or not produced um, in, in these situations now you know you know my background a little bit I think people that have listened along to the podcast usually the focus is not on me so maybe not so much but most I think understand that I'm a physiologist to, to some extent a kinesiologist to another I have to ask then Exercise is often a panacea, right? It, 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 it alleviates many symptoms and improves many conditions. But with exercise, part of exercise is physiological stress, and it's the adaptation to that physiological stress. So the stress that you're talking about with individuals who exhibit this particular you know, piece of the genome, when you say stress, do you mean... Emotional stress, I mean, physical emotional. stress. Is it? Can it be? Is it both? I mean, how how do people sickle cell respond to exercise? Well, I suppose. So, so to answer the one question, <laughs> that's a lot. I just threw um, a lot. Of it's 
it's I'm looking more like at emotional stress because mm-hmm. with emotional stress you can have visceral reactions. Right. So that's one thing, but also with uh, physical stress, I haven't so much looked at physical stress. That's something coming down the line when I'm looking at like to answer some of my questions. I might use ecological momentary assessment. You might need a collaborator, is what you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know somebody. <laughs> Did I give you my card yet? <laughs> I know somebody too. <laughs> um, yeah. So f- for those, you know, with with respect to exercise and sickle cell disease a lot of people are a lot of groups are looking at that like how is how are you know how are they the patients able to tolerate it Mm -hmm. and once again it's not just a one-size-fits-all it's unfortunately it's never a one size it's not that easy right they're not gonna let us off that That, easy that (laughs) seems to be a reoccurring theme that comes up no matter what discipline uh, the guests we have on the show, um, you know, their expertise is in is that there's such a need for precision medicine mm-hmm. that is that this this treatment is going to be specific to you. Now, that may fall within a region of people like you and it can be tweaked a little bit. But at the end of the day, just because you look this way and talk this way and come from this place and are this old, that doesn't mean that this pill is going to work for you, that this treatment's going to work for you got to make sure that it's specifically for you. It seems like sickle cell is another one of those those domains. Oh, definitely. More job security. Definitely. I I wanted to ask you something though. Um you uh are working and this is something that that we'll talk about off air as well. Working toward making a connection um between the podcast and a colleague and friend of yours. And one of the things that we talked about when we were setting this episode up is she, you wanted to have her on because of what she does here at UF, if I remember correctly, but um, also a little bit from her perspective, from the patient experience again, for people who have and and are suffering from, I should say, sickle cell. What are some of the things? Just you know, in closing, because we have only a little bit of time left. What are some of the the biggest issues that that people living with sickle cell have to deal with? that somehow get lost in the shuffle when it comes to the patient care side of things that you alluded to earlier. You mentioned pain, but are there some other issues that, that, that people out there are really, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs, like, hey, why don't we have fill in the blank? Why don't you get fill in the blank? Or, or can you share some of those things? Well, one of the, one of the main things are the wait times in the emergency department. Mm. If I come into the emergency department and I'm telling you that I have so much pain and I have a diagnosis of sickle cell disease why am I still and you're telling me that you care because they have some hospitals have liaisons Mm -hmm. that kind of try to well either I don't know just hold either hold a job or actually try to bridge and help the patients Mm -hmm. but um you know if if a patient with another condition comes in with excruciating pain um, they're less likely to have to wait as long as a patient who has sickle cell disease. Hmm. Um, and, and so I don't know why that is because it's everywhere. But, but we do know that according to the data, and this is, this is something that's, that's very widely reported, if somebody who looks like you reports an 8 out of 10 according to pain, and somebody who looks like me records, re- reports an 8 out of 10 of experience pain, I'm more likely to be taken seriously that I really am at an 8 out of 10. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it is, and you had alluded to this earlier, but just to make it perfectly clear, when, and, and you know, just, to, I, I guess to be blatant with it, when someone who is black mm -hmm. says, I'm in pain, that's not taken as seriously when compared to someone who is white. Oh, yeah. The problem is, in this case, pain is a symptom of a disease. Right. Pain and sickle cell disease is a symptom of a bigger problem. Right. So if you're just because you came in last week with vasoclusive crisis, um, yeah, maybe you have vasoclusive crisis and maybe you had vasoclusive crisis and it was impacting your shoulder joints. But maybe this week it's impacting your hip joints. Uh, you know, are you leaning towards having avascular necrosis this week? Another week you're, you know, reporting pain. In your abdomen, is it splenic sequestration? That's a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. And if you're just sitting in the emergency room waiting for somebody to see you, you could die in the emergency room. Right. And it has happened. So that's, I mean, and, and just, just to be clear, that's akin. If somebody comes into the emergency department, they're in the emergency room and they are pale and they're not breathing. And, you know, let's say the person that brought them in says, oh, they grasped their chest. If you take one of those signs and symptoms away, the whole they're not breathing thing, well, now all of a sudden it could be something other than a heart attack, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and this is my non-medical analogy I'm making here. My point is, is in many of these cases with a sickle cell patient, pain is a very important sign or symptom. Yes, absolutely. And so you cannot ignore that because then you could misdiagnose and, and maybe incorrectly triage them in, 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 you know, threaten their life even. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a big deal to me. It's a big, very big deal. It's a very big deal. So what, what are there groups out there? Are there advocacy, advocacy groups for sickle cell that, um, that are working to, to try to promote awareness, not only amongst, you know, physicians, but amongst the public as well? Yes, it kind of depends on where you are. Um, so, for example, here, you know, Florida, the state of Florida is the second most um, highest prevalence of sickle cell disease in the U.S. Hmm. But um, but where I am now in the tri-state area, Memphis or Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, no, Arkansas. Okay. <laughs> tri-state, quad state. You know. Tri-state, Tennessee, <laughs> Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas. Um you know, it's very dense. So as far as being, you know, most populous, well, it's not. But in density, you can throw a pen and hit somebody, you know, piece of rice. You don't have to look right. very far. Right. So, um, yeah, it just, it just. Well, that's a great place to be conducting research then and, and to be. And in, in to be making contact and advocating for yeah. for those groups, obviously, because you have the opportunity to help a lot of people. in that Right. Area. So my point to that is the critical mass, because so many people are impacted by it. Mm -hmm. um, you have, you know, their sickle cell association, for example, where people like participate in the walk. And it's not just a small group of people. It's a big walk and the newscasters get involved and you know, different personalities, the public personalities get involved. Mm -hmm. um, whereas here, where in, in this area where we are, where it's not as densely populated, this, the community support 
just from me being a lay person with respect to that, the community the support does not seem to be where it needs to be. But there are fighters out there. There are people out there with and without sickle cell disease, even here in the Gainesville area, who are trying to impact, uh, make a difference um, to help the patients who have sickle cell, even if it means that they have to come to the emergency department when um, somebody is in the ED and they might give them a call and say, nobody is believing me. Can you come and help me? You know, and there'll be somebody who can come. But that's a situation where you have to know, you have to have that a relationship, so to speak. Um, you know, so it just it just varies a lot. And there are groups of, of people who want to make a difference. But I think that at some point you have to have a critical mass. And there, there are national organizations mm-hmm. as well. So we'll you know all we can do is keep our finger fingers crossed and keep working keep towards it yeah. and some areas have had they have the momentum now mm-hmm. the area where i am they have the momentum um because there's so many people impacted well thank you for your work in in this field and and i again i love the fact that that you took the time throughout the the progression of your career to to stay on the clinical side and to to be that person who is a patient's first contact and you know i i get that it was eye-opening for you but in listening to you that wasn't an accident that was something you specifically set out to do and that takes a very special person to then take that and segue that into a, a very thus far successful research career so um Thank you for that. And, and also thank you for taking some time at very last minute. You know, you, you just found out that you're coming down to, to Gainesville. What on Friday? I did Friday night. <laughs> well, thank you for reaching out because you're a guest that I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time now. And I hope that this is just the first of many. I, I hope so as well. I'm looking forward to doing this again. Thank you for joining this episode of the price of pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.